0: Ladies and gentlemen, you really had a taste there of the incredible range of activities going on here in Oxford with links to India. I'm going to ask Richard and Malcolm, Sunali and Maria, could you come and join us on the stage? And we have about 15 minutes now for for questions before lunch. And uh, the, the floor is open. Questions from the audience, please. Yes, there's one at the back there. So the question is, what is the technology of the 21st century? And the second part of the question was, as where do we go? Is it the institutions? Is it policy? What aspects of, of, of society should we be most focusing on? Let me, well, I'll ask Malcolm to talk about technology to begin with while the others think. Malcolm.
1: So I think one of the, the big challenges for the 21st century is that up to this point, we have not taken into account the planetary boundaries, uh, such as the amount of resources that we're consuming or the amount of um, uh, pollution we're putting into, into the atmosphere, that has been a relatively low constraint on, on technology. So I think that we're going to see a tremendous uh, evolution and maybe even revolution in technologies in aspects of delivering energy, delivering water, delivering food, delivering transport. All these things are going to be completely changed over the next few year, uh, next 10, year, 10 to 15 years. I think they will include um, more radical things like uh, new nuclear power is going to have to come through. Uh, I think there's going to be quite a, a big push in genetic engineering to get crops that are more adaptable, more useful. I think one of the big challenges in my area is going to be in storage, how do to do large-scale energy storage, There's going to be a a big push in things like how do we make uh, fresh water. So I think there are quite a wide range of technologies and uh, big challenges that we're going to be facing. Colin. Perhaps I can just
2: uh, address the institutions and policy question, which I think is a a really interesting one uh, and increasingly relevant. And if you think, for example, about the response to the financial crisis and the way in which governments have reacted to it around the world. It's very much a knee-jerk reaction of saying that governments need to act in the face of crisis. And what has really emerged as a major deficiency in terms of that reaction is actually institutional, not policy. Uh, And that uh, what is now being increasingly discussed is the way in which institutions need to adapt to be able to respond to the types of failures that occurred in the past. And I think what we are going to see over the next decade or so is an increasing emphasis on the way in which one is going to develop new institutions, some of which uh, Nairi referred to in terms of global institutions, but also institutions very much at a more local level uh, in terms of ability to fill the gap that standard government policy has so clearly failed uh, to address in the past. And I think that the the challenge in terms of how one establishes institutions to do that is really what's going to be a major focus.
0: How do we balance globalization with Politburo politics? Nairi.
3: Yeah, I think it's a a really... um, Great question, and it it is startling the extent to which not just Indian business, but Indian NGOs and and other social actors and social entrepreneurs are global, um, in a way that perhaps government, as you say, is not yet. I remember um, 10 years ago when I was the senior advisor to the Human Development Report, the director, I, I had proposed to the director that we needed some, A, we needed some cases from India, but compared carefully to some experiments that were taking place in Brazil and in other countries. And she said to me at the time, she said, no, no, you'll never ever get that. People either work on India or they work on other places in the world, whether they're Indian or whether they're European. If they work on India, that's all they work on because India is a world, right? There's so much diversity in India that, that, you know, you can happily spend centuries just studying the differences within India. And I think that had some truth. I mean it, it and and both about the scholarship about India and about the practice of government in India. And I think that's but I think that is changing and that's certainly what the Blavatnik School hopes to accelerate a change in, partly by opening up, as I was saying, not not just through the people and networking, but also through the case studies, which begin to be more close to the preoccupations of practitioners in India. And I think just finally, there's another point from the the previous question about technologies of government where India is really interesting because it's so technologically advanced to think about what that technology can do to the way government is delivered. It gives us much better information about what governments do. It also can make governments much more accountable to citizens and open up different ways for governments to deliver. So there there is a potential transformation of government and I think that India's increasing openness at the level of government will we'll help oxygenate that.
0: Maria, you, you linked contemporary politics to kingship. Is that compatible with globalisation? Well, I, I suppose I,
4: I, I don't entirely... Well, I... Disagree with the, with the questioner, but, but I don't think that India ever has been very Soviet style, really. I think it's used some of the nomenclatura, if you like, um, you know, it's used the language of it. But I think if you look closely, that isn't really uh, uh, how it works. I suppose I'm, I'm defending my own brief here, and I think that India has its own indigenous traditions and institutions and way of working and ideas of, of legitimacy. Uh, and I suppose what I'm trying to drive at, in, or what I'm trying to get at in my research, is how important it is to vernacularize modernity I and mean, when you know we talk about international institutions and global institutions India is a society with very strong nationalist traditions uh, and, and you know like China uh, and I think that anything that comes with a great big smack of westernization uh, layered over it won't go down well um, so I think that that you know I think you know N- Nairi's uh, school of government which is going to be very much more sensitive uh, to non-American and non-North Atlantic Ways of doing things is is a very good idea, but I, as a historian, I'm bound to say that there has to be sensitivity to in, to indigenous practices.
0: Richard,
5: yeah. one tiny comment. I mean, there have been lots of examples of trying to centralise power that have been a complete disaster in the 20th century, but the the one thing, if you if you want to say what are the big causes of premature death and what can we do about them, maternal mortality, you know, perinatal mortality need for vaccination services, um, just actually need for clean water, need for treatments for the diseases that cause a lot of unnecessary deaths and are really easy to deal with. The the good health at low cost, the low-cost things that really matter, that really drive mortality down, not the expensive medical services. A lot of these have actually been delivered quite well by societies that have tried to organize them. There was a time in China, I mean, there's many aspects of China in the 1950s, 1960s, which make it one of the worst nightmares in the world. But there were periods then, if you miss out the Grand Famine, which killed 40 million, when life expectancy was increasing by more than one year per year. There was, in the 1960s, when the World Health Organization was listing, you know, which America's, uh, c- uh, countries in the Americas had low mortality. There were only three. It was Canada, the United States, and Cuba spending less than 1% as much, but really achieving low child mortality. So, there are, But there are some things that should be done by the state. China tried to abandon its health services in 1984, and they just had a huge explosion of unregulated and catastrophically inefficient healthcare delivery, and now they're trying to get back to delivering a minimum, and there's a few minimal things that governments can actually do. There are some things that are very, very good value for money, and it doesn't matter whether the other things get done or not, but it does matter whether the big ones get done, and government, we shouldn't talk about getting rid of government in all aspects of healthcare. There are some where it has a really good role in making sure the
0: poor don't die. There's another question at the front here. Uh, It's okay, it's on.
6: Uh, Okay, uh, all right. Um, My question is to um, Professor Malcolm McCullough directly, but it might have implications for what Vijay Joshi and Nairi and and Colin Mayer said, that in the context of rise of India and China, the question of sustainability, ecological sustainability, I felt that uh, it is true that there has to be technologically-oriented solutions, and and your idea about dealing with carbon dioxide emissions through sort of finding technology for automobiles which reduce emissions is an interesting one and needs to be explored. But there are also studies that where such technologies have been found, especially studies in Scandinavia, that actually the total amount of carbon dioxide emissions haven't come down. Part of the reason is that the style of life hasn't changed. And also the complacency, because the emissions have gone down, you can overuse uh, cars. So unless the, the, the development of technology is accompanied by research, also into changing modes of practice of daily life, uh, technology is not going to be able to solve this problem of ecological, you know, sort of threat to ecological sustainability. Let me let me send that question to Malcolm
0: and then to VJ and then Sonali. This question of economically orientated solutions. Malcolm.
1: So this is uh, one of the interesting areas I didn't get to talk about, but uh, it's an interesting where you get human behaviour interacting with technology. And what you've just talked about is the rebound effect. You know, the typical thing, uh, classic example in this country when we made uh, seatbelts uh, that you had to wear, legally wear them. The mortality rate kept constant because people were taking higher risks because they felt safer. So, uh, and we see this, the same thing in the energy, energy uh, sphere.
5: Traffic death rates are going down beautifully in this country. Yeah, they, they are now. but not at that time. Not at that time. We're getting, driving more miles and having fewer deaths. Uh,
1: the 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 challenge is to say how do we have to change the society in order to appreciate the. Costs that we are actually doing in doing the activities that we are that that, that, that we are performing, and it's only when we get to a point where we can be aware of and be sensitive to those costs, then I think the, 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 we can get ourselves into virtual loop. Technology on its own can never solve the problem. It's going to be technology plus economics plus an, uh, an appreciation of the natural world that we live in.
0: VJ. Well.
7: Um, As as an economist, you would expect me to say this, wouldn't you? But uh, yes, I I agree. Technology alone can't do it. And a problem uh, of of the kind that the uh, the questioner was asking about, uh, there is a very important role for public policy in making prices reflect social costs and benefits. I mean, unless the price system takes account of some of these things. And unless people are faced with prices which actually they have to react to, nothing much will happen in my opinion. I mean, you can't just advocate these things and expect people to change their behavior. I think it has to be reflected in the prices they face.
0: Sunali,
8: I think building on the point of behaviors, I think India has a huge opportunity in the sense of, if you look at it, we have 400 million people in India who have no electricity. So it's to say that you have to switch people from being polluters to non-polluters actually doesn't exist. You can have these people use clean technologies straight away if mm-hmm. you had the right incentives to, to diffuse clean technologies. I think it, 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 India, so if you look at transport, I think trans, uh, car usage and purchasing is directly related to a rise in income and GDP per capita. So as you see GDP per capita rise, you're going to see car sales in India increase dramatically. Now, if India chooses to have electric car vehicles and introduces the right policies to actually promote these clean technologies, India could have done a lot of the job that other countries are struggling to do is simply because of where it is in its development cycle. So I think it's the onus, or on, it's, it's it has to be collective. It's behaviors are influenced by opportunity, by time, by policy. So it has, it's a combination of factors.
9: We'll have one last question in the middle. Thank you. Um, my name is Tushar Prabhu, and I'm a second generation Indian living in this country, but frequently involving India. Um, My question relates to what the panel feels about a question which puzzles me a lot, which is whether to be optimistic or pessimistic about the prospects of India in my lifetime. Um, Much has been said about the role that government plays. So I guess my my question is in two parts. I mean, I debate this with my friends, and we have diehards who feel it's going up and some who feel the population is going to swamp it. The question is this. um, Can India do well without government reform is do all of these roads ultimately lead back to government or is there a way in which the other part of the indian economy will somehow make the government irrelevant and if the answer is no if in fact government reform is absolutely vital and everything else is somewhat not going to get us where we need to be then i just wonder given what i saw in terms of the way in which political modes are working right now with um, the circle of kings or the warrior and the interplay between these two modes, does that give a very good prospect for actual um, the the prospect of real government reform happening when that feels like you need a more righteous model of uh, leadership to be in play? Mm. So question for everyone.
0: Should we be optimistic or pessimistic, government reform or some other forces within society leading to change? Let me begin with Nairi and, and we'll go around.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it, it's tempting for lots of countries and frustrated entrepreneurs around the world to pose themselves the question, wouldn't we be better either without government or without the nuisance, the messy, complex, often corrupt business called democracy? Wouldn't we be better if we just had some, some good, efficient, top-down, diktat um, government? And I think... I mean, that's caricaturing, but I think that what that misses is that in a democracy like India, it's not just by voting that people hold governments to account and force governments to change. It's through all kinds of other ways, right? It's the openness, the other kinds of openness in a democracy that don't permit a government not to change. So when you say, if the government doesn't change, my answer would be, the government will change. It cannot be that in a country with a vibrant globalizing private sector, with a vibrant globalizing social sector, you know, with a vibrant, loud, rambunctious um, parliament and press and media, with all those forces at work, the great value of a democracy which India is so much and which many so value, is that it it forces a government to be open to those forces. That's what the North African dictators soon discovered, right? It's that you will be forced to change. Now, it doesn't mean that democracies deliver the conditions for great economic growth. That's the frustration for Indian entrepreneurs. But it does mean that they can keep pushing and pushing for change that other groups can keep pushing for change and that indian government will as a result change and i have no doubt about it and i hope we'll help with that
0: <laughs> maria will change occur or will the circle of kings uh, Well, I
4: thought the question was, should we be optimists or pessimists? Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, we should always be optimists. Uh, I, I suppose looking at, uh, you know, at India, uh, what, I, I, you know, I wasn't trying to... I mean, I suppose it sounds as if, the, you know, what you really need is a great righteous Chakravartin to come and sort everything out, but it isn't going to happen. Um, and uh, what one has seen in India, though, is a tremendous capacity for the system to adapt. Uh, Now, I mean, some of those adaptations are clearly dysfunctional. um, And, you know, it would be great if there wasn't a lot of corruption in the system. It would be great if a lot of political time and energy were not spent trying to hold coalitions together, trying to hold circles of kings together. But I think the upside of this is that, you know, this is, uh, you know, one of the most attractive countries in the world in many ways. It's one of the only countries, probably the only country, that's ever, ever embarked on an experiment of major modernisation as a democracy. I mean, it just doesn't happen anywhere else. And, you know, as I say, the system has given it because it has all of these historical traditions of leadership and legitimacy and incorporation. There's an elasticity there. And so I suppose my view would be to to make haste more slowly, be patient.
0: Colin, will business be a major factor? Uh,
2: I'm very optimistic about the prospect on one condition. I mean, there are several problems that need to be addressed about corruption, environment, health, etc. But the one that I think is overwhelming is the one that Vishay Joshi referred to earlier on, and that is whether it's inclusive growth. And I think that the prospect of it continuing the way in which it has, without that being the case, is not so good. Um, And that really means that although business... Can do a great deal business on its own will actually exacerbate the problem as we've seen in so many countries around the world unless one has really effective state involvement alongside it
0: v j w- inclusive growth are you optimistic
7: um, well um, I, I think that, uh, there are two di- there, there are two different po- questions here really. but one is whether i'm optimistic or pessimistic and and the other is what are the things that need to be done i think uh, i mean I am cautiously optimistic because India is a democracy and because, because in the end, the government does react, though, though slowly. Yeah. But, but nevertheless, one has to say there are a number of things that have to be done. For example, on the question about um, uh, corruption and crony capitalism and all the rest of it, I mean, it's not difficult to think of things that would improve the situation. For example, there has to be a reform of electoral funding. I mean, that's absolutely critical. I mean, if politicians didn't have to go out and find money every time they have to get elected, uh, they, they wouldn't need to indulge in some of these things. So public, uh, electoral funding should be public. I mean, that's one of the major reforms that I think India needs. The second one, going along the same vein, would be that many of the discretionary powers of ministers should be taken away and given to independent regulatory authorities. Now, of course, who regulates the regulators? So, it, so what I'm saying is not, it, it's not that straightforward, but nevertheless, that's the effort that, that has to take place. But I, given that India is a democracy, I think these things will, I, I, think, I, I would guess, will happen.
0: Richard, you singled out malaria figures for for focus. Will there be reform in the health care system?
5: Um, Well,
0: you've got a situation where life expectancy is
5: improving all the time, where child survival is getting better. There is steady improvement although there's still some very obvious things that need doing. But I think we're going to get a situation where life expectancy in India is not so different from life expectancy in Europe now. And Population stability has already been achieved, and that may sound mad when you've got 25 million births a year and 10 million deaths. But actually, what's happening is that we've got the number of age 5 to 9 and the number of age 25 to 29 is about the same because you know the extent to which young parents are having young kids has stabilized off, and it's just that the rest of the population is now growing up to sort of fill. The, the shape of the survival curve if you like so the, the key thing about we don't have vastly more young kids than young parents which was the situation in 1965 when Eric was writing is no longer the situation that has been achieved and that's that's one very good precondition for eventually long term stability so in the population growth is somewhat misleading it isn't fueled by this geometric progression at the bottom end which is still going on in Africa.
0: Thank you. We really need to bring the the session to a close and I hope you'll all agree with me, ladies and gentlemen, it's been a marvellous morning. Yes, let's please thank everyone.